Welcome everyone to episode 35 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. One hundred and fifty-nine years ago, slave traders stole Lorna Gale Woods' great-great-grandfather from what is now Benin in West Africa. Her ancestor, Charlie Lewis, was brutally ripped from his homeland, along with a hundred and nine other Africans, and brought to Alabama on the Clotilda, the last known slave ship to arrive in the United States. Today, researchers confirmed that the remains of that vessel long rumored to exist, but elusive for decades, have been found along the Mobile River near Twelve Mile Island and just north of the Mobile Bay Delta. From SmithsonianMag.com, the Clotilda, the last known slave ship to arrive in the U.S., is found, and this was written by Allison Keyes. The excitement and joy is overwhelming, says Woods in a voice trembling with emotion, She's 70 years old now, but she's been hearing stories about her family history and the ship that tore them from their homeland since she was a child in Africatown, a small community just north of Mobile, founded by the Clotilda's survivors after the Civil War. The authentication and confirmation of the Clotilda was led by the Alabama Historical Commission and Search Incorporated, a group of maritime archaeologists and divers who specialize in historic shipwrecks. Last year, the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture's Slave Wrecks Project joined the effort to help improve the community of Africatown in the preservation of the history, explains Smithsonian curator and SWP co-director Paul Gardulo. Two years ago, Gardulo says talks began about mounting a search for the Clotilda based on conversations with the descendants of the founders of Africatown. Then, last year, it seemed that Ben Rains, a reporter with AL.com, had found the Clotilda, but that wreck turned out to be too large to be the missing ship. Gardulo says everyone involved got moving on several fronts to deal with a complicated archaeological search process to find the real Clotilda. This was a search not only for a ship. This was a search to find our history, and this was a search for identity, and this was a search for justice, Gardulo explains. This is a way of restoring truth to a story that is too often papered over. Africatown is a community that is economically blighted, and there are reasons for that. Justice can involve recognition. Justice can involve things like hard, truthful talk about repair and reconciliation. Even though the U.S. banned the importation of the enslaved from Africa in 1808, the high demand for slave labor from the booming cotton trade encouraged Alabama plantation owners like Timothy Meir to risk illegal slave runs to Africa. Meir took that risk on a bet that he could bring a shipload of Africans back across from the ocean. In 1860, his schooner sailed from Mobile to what was then the Kingdom of Dahomey under Captain William Foster. He bought Africans captured by warring tribes back to Alabama, skulking into Mobile Bay under the cover of midnight, then up the Mobile River. Some of the transported enslaved were divided between Foster and the Mears, and others were sold. 
Foster then ordered the Clotilda taken upstream, burned, and sunk to conceal the evidence of their illegal activity. After being freed by Union soldiers in 1865, the Clotilda's survivors sought to return to Africa, but they didn't have enough money. They pooled wages they earned from selling vegetables and working in fields and mills to purchase land from the Mirror family. Calling their new settlement Africa Town, they formed a society rooted in their beloved homeland, complete with a chief, a system of laws, churches, and a school. Woods is among the descendants who still live there. Finally, she says, the stories of their ancestors were proved true and have now been vindicated. So many people along the way didn't think that happened because we didn't have proof. By this ship being found, we have the proof that we need to say this is the ship that they were on and their spirits are in this ship, Woods says proudly. No matter what you take away from us now, this is proof for the people who lived and died and didn't know it would ever be found. The museum's founding director, Lonnie Bunch, says the discovery of the Clotilda tells a unique story about how pervasive the slave trade was, even into the dawn of the Civil War. One of the things that's so powerful about this is by showing that the slave trade went later than most people think, it talks about how central slavery was to America's economic growth and also to America's identity, Bunch says. For me, this is positive because it puts a human face on one of the most important aspects of African-American and American history. The fact that you have those descendants in that town who can tell stories and share memories, suddenly it's real. Curators and researchers have been in conversation with the descendants of the Clotilda survivors to make sure that the scientific authentication of the ship also involved community engagement. Smithsonian curator Mary Elliott spent time in Africatown visiting with churches and young members of the community and says the legacy of slavery and racism has made a tangible footprint here in this place across a bridge from downtown Mobile. In a neighborhood called Lewis Quarters, Elliott says what used to be a spacious residential neighborhood near a creek is now comprised of a few isolated homes encroached upon by a highway and various industries. What's powerful about Africatown is the history. What's powerful about it is the culture. What's powerful about it is the heritage stewardship that so many people have held on to this history and tried to maintain it within the landscape as best they could, Elliot says. But it also shows the legacies of slavery. You see environmental racism. You see where there's blight and not necessarily because the residents didn't care, but due to a lack of resources which is often the case for historic black communities across the country. When people drive through that landscape, they should have a better sense of the power of place, how to read the land and connect to the history. But Elliot sees a beauty here as well, through the lens of the original Clotilda survivors. You can close your eyes and think of when these enslaved African men, women, and children came into this site, Elliot says of the men and women who bought their land, but still had to survive in a segregated, racist environment. It comes down to having a vision not just for that moment, but for generations to come. For them to create that community is very significant because there's empowerment, not just in having land, but having that kinship network of community members connected by way of being on that ship. The significance of the find was also on the minds of SWP members involved in the search for the schooner, like diver Kamau Siddiqui, an archaeology advocate and instructor with diving with a purpose. 
There are no photographs of the site where the Clotilda was found or the wreck itself. The ship wasn't very deep, eight to ten feet at most, Siddiqui recalls, but the conditions are sort of treacherous. Visibility was almost zero, and there's some current, but the most important thing is that you're among wreckage and that you cannot see. There's a whole host of possibilities of being injured, from being impaled to getting snagged and so forth. Sadiq was also part of the dive team that worked the South African side of the slave ship, Sao Jose Paquette de Africa, one of the first historically documented ships carrying enslaved Africans when it sank. Artifacts from the ship, including iron ballast, a wooden pulley, and slave shackles, are on display at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Siddiqui says touching that vessel made him hear the screams and the horrors and the suffering of those aboard. But working with the Africatown community and the Clotilda search was intimate for him on a different level. I knew what that ship represents, the story and the pain of the descendant community. I've heard the voices. I can look him in the eye and I can see the pain of the whole Africatown experience over the past hundred years, Siddiqui explains. They've been very resilient. The Clotilda should be known by everyone who calls themselves an American because it's so pivotal to the American story. Bunch says this feels powerful and emotional to him in a similar way to when he was able to lay his hands upon the iron ballast from the San Jose, which brought him to tears. What's different about this is that when we did the San Jose, a part of it is because there were human remains there, and that was really a way to honor those folks. With the Clotilda, we honor not the remains, but the survival of the people who created Africatown, he says. Gardulo adds that the story of the Clotilda has layers that are deeply rooted in the present as well as the past. There's real concern about whether somebody is going to take action here in a negative way to go and do damage to this invaluable cultural resource, Gardulo says, adding that history is never in the past. This history of slavery is always with us. Even things that seem ancient and seem like they're remnants of the past are continuing to shape our present, and we have to deal with that in very practical ways, and sometimes that involves real protection. Elliot says there are ongoing discussions about the kinds of programs and exhibitions that might occur to commemorate and remember this American story. The question is, what do those look like, and how do they draw the larger community to a history that is local, national, and global in scope? She explained that one possibility is a Big Read program, where community residents collectively read and reflect upon Zora Neale Hurston's book, Barracoon. This book is based on Hurston's 1927 interviews with Cudjo Lewis, brother of Charlie Lewis, and one of the last survivors of the Clotilda. In his own dialect, Cudjo Lewis tells the story of his capture, his journey to the U.S., and the beginning of Africatown. Plans are also in the works for a National Park Service Blue Way here, rather like a water-based heritage trail. The Smithsonian's Gardulo adds that the team is also considering just how to preserve the Clotilda and where it could be best saved for the long term so that it can reach the most people. It also inspires bigger, more philosophical questions. What can this actually teach us? What can this teach us about ourselves? How can the history of this ship drenched in oppression liberate us, Gardulo wonders. People from Africatown itself have to help us begin to think about what's important here. 
Africatown native Anderson Flynn hopes it brings his birthplace the attention it needs in terms of equity for a community he feels has been deliberately decimated. He says he doesn't know if he's related directly to the Clotilda survivors, partly because of the way African Americans who came from the motherland were split apart. There's been a lack of thoroughness as it relates to African American history because of what happened to them, and so our history is really one that is a mystery to many of us, and therefore there's a void and pain, Flynn says, adding that he hopes this discovery brings enough attention to Africatown to change things for residents. But Lorna Gale Woods says she is more than glad that the Clotilda has finally been found because it's a tribute to the strength of her ancestors. We should be proud of the land they almost starved to death trying to buy, probably so they could leave a legacy for us, Woods says. And now we're able to tell their part of the story, and that's the joy I get from knowing the Clotilda was not just a myth, it was a living thing that happened. Shasta, located near the Oregon border in Northern California, holds the distinction of being one of the world's preeminent sacred mountains. It is recognized as an eligible Native American cultural and cosmological property on the National Register of Historic Places. Artifacts found in the surrounding area conservatively suggest at least 11,000 years of human habitation, designating this region as one of the longest occupied areas of North America. From AncientOrigins.net, a story by D.W. Naif, Mount Shasta, Spirits and Danger on a Sacred California Mountain. On a clear day, Mount Shasta can be seen from over a hundred miles away. The mountain, part of the thousand-mile-long Cascade Range stretching from Northern California to British Columbia, is one of the largest stratovolcanoes in the world rising to an altitude of 14,179 feet. It is also part of a chain of volcanoes that encompasses the Pacific Basin's notorious Ring of Fire, along which the majority of the planet's earthquakes and eruptions occur. Geologists consider Mount Shasta to be a very dangerous, high-threat volcano. Someday it'll wake up and erupt again, possibly during this century. A volcanic eruption from Mount Shasta could match or exceed the scale of the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens. The effects of an eruption on the surrounding towns close to the base of the mountain are predicted to be catastrophic, and because volcanoes stay active for years after an eruption, the region may have to be closed off to the public for a very long time. Mount Shasta's fuse is already burning, and all experts agree It's not a matter of if Mount Shasta will erupt again, but when. Throughout history, mankind has always been drawn to mountains as a sacred feature of the landscape. It's likely that mountains are among the oldest places of worship on the planet, the first temples. They figure prominently in the earliest religious myths of mankind, and our connection to them is so powerful that many of the world's oldest monuments such as the Egyptian and Mayan pyramids, were obviously built in their semblance. 
Northwestern California Native American tribes traditionally view Mount Shasta as being structurally and energetically connected to a wide range of important volcanic landscapes and mountains, which extend northwards and southwards of their tribal territories. A primordial spiritual connection is believed to link all these energetically powerful sites together, including Mount Shasta, Lassen Peak, Lava Beds, Medicine Lake Highlands, Crater Lake, as well as many other lesser landmarks found throughout the region. Pulses of human occupation surrounding Mount Shasta have been traced back to around the end of the last Ice Age, some 11,000 years ago, marking this area of Northern California as one of the oldest continually occupied regions in North America. More recent discoveries suggest there may have been substantial human occupation along the Northern California-Nevada border going back as far as 14,000 years ago. Mount Shasta's vast antiquity and mythic relevance places its significance on par, historically and categorically, with other sacred sites found among the world's oldest known civilizations, including the temples and pyramids of Egypt, Stonehenge, the Mayan pyramids, and Machu Picchu. From a philosophical and spiritual standpoint, Mount Shasta is far more powerful and impressive than anything ever built by man. It is a creator-made temple and monument, half a billion years old. In an abstract geological sense, Mount Shasta is still alive and under construction, and it will continually erupt, regenerate, and change forms far into the future. Native Americans have observed Mount Shasta as a sacred mountain from time immemorial. They viewed the mountain and its surroundings as holy ground. It is thought to be one of the first earthly places created by the Great Spirit. In the past, no one but medicine men or women climbed up the mountain beyond the tree line. It was thought to be too powerful for ordinary people to visit, and inhabited by hosts of potentially dangerous spirits and guardians who could harm a person who traveled up the mountain unprepared. Mount Shasta's significance as a power spot for non-indigenous people did not begin until the 19th century. The naturalist John Muir described the mountain's peak as a religious icon and helped to spread its legendary fame. Since its discovery, it quickly became one of California's must-see tourist destinations. There are many tangible and intangible qualities which make a mountain sacred, and some of these qualities go beyond its mere appearance. Mount Shasta isn't the tallest mountain in the West, but it is the most legendary. A sacred mountain tends to possess unusual characteristics which are more than just the accumulation of natural processes. There is, we feel, something different about a sacred mountain which cannot be easily explained, something that makes it so exceptional. It possesses a kind of energy that's unique to itself, which can be sensed and felt as much as seen. It draws people to it inexplicably, mysteriously. The power of such a mountain, writes Lama Anagarki Govinda, is so great and yet so subtle that without compulsion pilgrims are drawn to the mountain from near and far, as if by the force of some invisible magnet, and they will undergo untold hardships and privations in their inexplicable urge to approach and to worship the sacred spot. Nobody has conferred the title of sacredness upon such a mountain, 
By virtue of its own magnetic and psychic emanations, the mountain is intuitively recognized to be sacred. It needs no organizer of its worship. Innately, each of its devotees feels the urge to pay it reverence. All over the world, there are places anciently known for their anomalous energies and mysterious phenomenon. Today, experts recognize these sacred sites around the world influence human consciousness and other living organisms in a number of unusual and remarkable ways. They have become colloquially known as ancient power spots, places where people commonly experience unusual phenomenon such as UFO-related activity, portals into other dimensions, consciousness-altering experiences, and other paranormal phenomenon. When one enters into a sacred site of so-called powerful energy, the mind, body, and spirit are instantly affected. The energy at these places can be felt, sensed, doused, photographed, and measured with scientific instrumentation. The spiritual use of these major power spots around the world is now beginning to be thought of as the unifying influence behind the rise of human civilization. Previously, it was believed that spirituality arose only after mankind had already developed farming and villages, and religion was subsequently invented as a coercive means to promote cooperation and control. It turns out, however, that this theory is completely backwards. Now, it's beginning to be understood that mankind's spiritual awakening actually precipitated the rise of human civilization. Humanity's earliest spiritual experiences drew diverse groups of people to come together who invariably clustered around the locations where most of the world's major sacred sites and great spiritual centers exist to this day. People came together at these sites for ritualistic and ceremonial purposes, and this, it turns out, created the need for people to form communities to grow food and accommodate the large populations gathering at these sites all over the world and subsequently develop farming, villages, culture, and social cooperation. Mount Shasta is one of these places, an ancient sacred mountain pilgrimage destination whose mysteries still call out to us from the past and continue to challenge our comprehension in the modern era. They gave me a million bucks to keep my trap shut, and I did, for 15 years. But last night I was making the rounds, and I saw the professor again. I had a heart attack three years back, and I tell you, when I saw him standing there in front of room 204, I felt another one coming on. He turned and smiled, and it was like he hadn't aged a day in 15 years. Hey there, chief, he said, and that was it. I dropped my clipboard on the ground and hightailed it out of there, never looking back. What I'm about to tell you is liable to make me sound crazier than a three-horned goat, but I promise you, there's crazier things out there. The cops don't believe me. The official story is that the professor and those students died 15 years ago. Room 204 just up and exploded, they said. Damnedest thing. And there's some truth there. The room did explode. But it wasn't an accident. 
we knew exactly what we were doing, or we thought we did. They call me an assistant supervisor of maintenance, but really, I'm a janitor and always have been. You might wonder why I'm still at it after getting that million bucks. That dose for Junior, so he didn't have to go through the same shit that I did. The night this happened, I was assigned to the Astrophysics Center, a bit northwest of the main Harvard campus. Until that night, this was always my favorite beat. I mean, God help you if you wound up in one of the biology labs. Those goddamn dead, cut-open animals all over the place used to give me nightmares. And really, thinking back, I'd take those nightmares of mutilated and scattered organs any night over the stuff that has haunted me ever since. Anyway, I was there mopping the hallway on the second floor of the lab building when the door to room 204 opened up and this guy popped his head out. Hey, you. I looked around to make sure he was talking to me. Yeah? Can I help you, sir? I thought he was going to bitch about the room being a mess or something. How'd you like to make a thousand bucks, chief? An hour's work at most. Easy money. Does that sound good to you? It sure did. Things were tight at home, as they always were. A thousand sure would knock off some of those long overdue bills. But I was also on a tight schedule. They didn't give you much breathing room. Don't want you standing around thinking about it all, I guess. That sounds great, sir, I said, but I gotta stick to my beat. The man laughed. We're about to make history, chief, he said. And you're worried about emptying the bathroom trash? Come on, don't sweat it. You won't get in trouble. I promise. I'm a professor here. I'll vouch for you. The guy did look like a professor, with carefully combed gray hair and big old glasses on his face. I shrugged, leaned my mop against the wall, and said, Sure, what do I have to do? That's fantastic. Come on in, chief. Come on in. I followed him into the room. One look, and I should have just turned around then and there and told him to keep his damn money. But I didn't. As soon as I stepped in, I felt the little hairs all over my body stand up. I don't mean I was scared. I mean like there was an electrical charge in that room, and I had a guess about where it was coming from. There, in the center of the room, on a round table, was a large glass globe, crackling with electricity, like what you see if you go into a kid's science museum, like they somehow created a lightning storm in a glass ball. This one was sort of vibrating around on its stand and buzzing, and the lightning inside was black. I could feel the electricity coming from it, from across the room. There were four kids there, students, I guessed, sitting in a row of chairs along one wall. More than sitting, they were strapped into those chairs, with metal things over their heads like those big bowl things you see at a hair salon. They all had their eyes closed. Uh, I said... What's going on here? Those kids okay? They're quite fine, said the professor. As to what is going on, as I said, we are about to make history. We are going to open the first wormhole. Wormhole, I said, like in the movies. The professor laughed. I suppose so, chief, he said. Now listen, we had a last minute cancellation, but that's okay because it's an easy job. We're going to be kicking things off here shortly, and once they're properly kicked off, the wormhole will open. I will enter. If I'm not back in 30 minutes, you are to pull that lever there, and this will close the wormhole. I looked to where it was pointing, at a big red lever attached to a giant whirring machine that was hooked up to the metal bowls over the students' heads. But, uh, 
Won't you be trapped on the other side of the wormhole? I asked. Not that I had the slightest idea about what the hell was going on. Just so, Chief, said the professor. We've got this down to two possibilities. One, the wormhole opens up to what we're calling the second universe. The best way that I can explain this possibility is that there is a completely different reality that exists on the other side of this one. The other side of an invisible wall. The wormhole will provide a door in that wall. And the other possibility? That the wormhole will open to a place that man was not meant to go. 30 minutes will give me enough time to get in and out if the first possibility is true. And if it's the second, then you'll close the hole with that lever and my students will destroy my work. That was all way above my pay grade and my head was spinning. Why only two possibilities? How the hell did they come up with those two? And if this is real, why the hell would the professor take a coin toss chance of getting stuck in the place that man was not meant to go? I mean, those were just starter questions among the swarm that was buzzing around in my head. I see that you have some reservations, said the professor. I assure you that your only job is to pull that lever after 30 minutes. That's it, chief. We'll take care of the rest. And anything that happens isn't on you. The documentation is quite in order. He tapped a folder that was sitting on the circular table. And here, I'll write you a check now, before we proceed. As he wrote out the check, I wondered if it would still be valid if he got swallowed up by the wormhole. I actually had that thought, as crazy as it sounds. It was still all so weird and abstract to me at that point. Here, he said, handing over the check. Let's do it, chief. As soon as I enter that hole, give me exactly 30 minutes, on the dot. That's all you have to do. I took the check, mumbled a thanks, and watched as he walked over to the machine. He pulled the lever. There was a loud crackling sound, and I watched in unease as one by one the student's eyes shot open. There were no pupils there, like their eyes were rolled back in their sockets. Hey now, I said, taking a step towards the machine. They are quite fine, said the professor. I assure you. Their jaws started to move like they were grinding their teeth. The professor took a jar of neon blue liquid from a shelf on the wall. He unscrewed the lid and poured the stuff over the electric globe on the round table. The thing started going crazy, and then the globe shattered completely, bits of glass flying through the air as shoots of black lightning zapped out into the room. I ducked down. I had had enough by then and was ready to get the hell out of there. Then it happened. A fucking black hole appeared in the middle of the room, sucking in the bolts of electricity. It grew larger and larger until it took up half the room. All I could hear was this rushing sound, like the world's largest vacuum cleaner running at full throttle. Remember, chief, shouted the professor with a wild look on his face. Thirty minutes exactly. Then he stepped into the thing and was gone. At first, my mind was a mess, staring at that whooshing black hole that seemed hungry to suck everything in. I looked at the kids hooked up to the machine. Their eyes rolled back, white holes, I guess they looked like, their jaws grinding away like crazy. It was too much to make sense of. I looked down at my watch. Fifteen minutes and thirty-one seconds had gone by since the professor got swallowed up by the wormhole. My heart was pounding and I kept pacing back and forth, back and forth, trying to work out what the hell was going on. Then I started to zero in on it. I was getting pranked. 
Not a prank like we used to do as kids, setting dog shit on somebody's front steps and all that idiocy. I mean a prank like the sophisticated college folk do, where they tell you something's going on but the whole point is just to observe your reaction. A psychological experiment. Probably cameras in here watching me right now. See what I'd do. Twelve minutes to go. I saw a trickle of blood come down from one of the kid's nose. I leaned down to look at him closely. He was shaking a little bit, all over. If I throw that lever, this will all probably stop. Maybe that was the test. I had to decide between trapping the professor in the black hole and saving the kids hooked up to the machines. None of it was real, of course, but they didn't know that I knew that. But then, screaming in the back of my mind was that voice. What if it is real? Ten minutes to go. The professor had promised me that the kids were all right. Another one started bleeding from the nose. If it wasn't real, it was a hell of a trick. Where did the professor go if not through that black hole? I thought about touching it, but whenever I got close, I was filled with total terror. It sure seemed real, like it really took you someplace far, far away from here. I walked over to the table and picked up the folder that was there. Just like the professor had said, the first page was instructions to shut down the machine and destroy it if he didn't return within 30 minutes. I flipped that page over, and the next one had a photograph of one of the students. I read what it said. It was a consent form. I, Jackson Stewart, acknowledge the possibility of my imminent death if I participate in this experiment. I am prepared to give my life to science. I flipped that page, and there were three more just like it. Now, I'm no lawyer, but there was no way in hell that this experiment was legal, if it was real, even with those consent forms. So it probably wasn't real. And if it was, then the professor lied to me. He had said that the kids were fine. This folder was telling me something else. Two minutes to go. I took a deep breath and paced the room, watching each second tick by. My mind was telling me that none of it was real, but my gut was screaming in horror. I just looked at my watch. It would be over soon enough, one way or the other. 30 seconds. I walked over to the machine and put my hand on the lever. God damn it, why is he cutting it so close? I watched the seconds tick by, and I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't know if I could risk trapping the professor wherever the hell he had gone off to. Five seconds. My hand was shaking. Four seconds. Sweat was pouring down my face, dripping into my eyes. Three seconds. One of the students started to moan. The one that I saw was named Jackson in the folder. Two seconds. Oh God, oh God, oh God. One second. Jackson started to shake. Zero seconds. Shit. I tensed my muscles to pull the lever. One look at Jackson and I knew I had to pull it. He was violently jerking around now. Wait! I snapped my neck around to see the professor's head sticking out of the black hole. Wait, damn it! Then his shoulders were through. I turned back to Jackson. Blood was pouring out of his eyes. I'm almost through. A second kid started to shake. One more second. I looked to see the professor was through. He was back in the room. Do it, he shouted. Two things happened after that, at the exact same time. I heard a wet, popping sound, and I watched as the wormhole disappeared, as though it was never there. But I had never pulled the lever. I slowly turned to look at Jackson. His head was gone.
judging by the bits of brain and splatters of blood on the bowl thing above his neck, his head had just exploded. The whirring of the machine gradually died down, and then it was silent. The three kids who were still alive stopped shaking and closed their eyes. A tragedy, said the professor, pointing at Jackson with the exploded head. But not for nothing. I've been there. I've seen it. Chief, I've seen it. I hunched over and puked. It was weird, but my first thought was, what a mess I'll have to clean up later. I don't know. I guess my mind had sort of shut down and I was going on autopilot. I was a janitor. I cleaned up messes. That was all I knew. Then it hit me. The reality of what had happened. You son of a bitch, I yelled. You told me those kids would be okay. The professor put this sickening, smug grin on his face. He would have been, chief, had you pulled the lever at the 30-minute mark, as instructed. You told me to wait. Did I? Yes, you fucker. I'm calling the police. I had a walkie clipped to my belt. It wouldn't get me the police, but it would get campus security. I reached for it, and I had it in my hand when I heard a groan behind me. I turned to see that it was one of the kids. They were waking up. I went over to unstrap them from the chairs. The first kid's eyes blinked open, and when she saw the professor, she started screaming. It's okay, I said. Shh, it's okay. It's all over. She kept screaming. Then the second kid woke up. He looked right at me with wide, terrified eyes. Get us out of here, he shouted. I'm working on it, kid, I said, fumbling at the straps. They were on tight. The third kid woke up. It's here, she said. It made it through. Everything's okay now, I said. Your friend didn't make it, I'm afraid, but it's over. I'll make sure the professor pays for what he did to you and your friends. The first kid was still screaming at the top of her lungs. Get us out of here, shouted the second kid again. The third kid looked me dead in the eyes in a totally calm voice and said, That's not the professor. What? Of course it is, I said. What I saw when I turned to look at the professor will haunt me forever. The professor's mouth was twisting around at odd angles, like something was moving the lower half of his jaw randomly, or like he was trying to get a hair out of his mouth that kept jumping around. The veins on his neck bulged, then sunk back down, then bulged again, so that they were thick as ropes. His wrists were rotating in ways they weren't supposed to rotate, as his arms flailed around wildly. I had the first kid, the screaming one, free. She jumped out of the chair and ran to the door, but her legs were wobbly, and she tripped over herself in the middle of the room. I went to work on the second kid, whipping my head around every second to look at the professor, it looked like there was something crawling around under his skin. Something big. Get us out of here, the second kid shouted yet again. The first kid was still on the ground, screaming. I worked away furiously on the straps. If you believe in God, said the third kid with an eerie calm, then pray. I took a glance at the professor, and that's when the first bone burst out of his chest, through his suit. I call it a bone, but it was pure black and dripping with green slime. As for me, said the third kid, I do not believe there is a god, not after what I've seen. The second kid was free and made a run for it. I scooted over to the third kid, but watched as the professor reached out an arm and grabbed the second kid by the top of his head. The professor gave one quick twist and let go. 
I heard a terrible snap and the kid slumped to the ground, dead. Three more black bones came out of the professor's chest, dripping. He laughed and bent down to the first kid, who was still screaming as bones began to poke out of his back like a fucking stegosaurus from hell. What is that thing? I asked as I fumbled at the straps of the last kid. It does not belong here, said the kid. No shit, I said, getting one strap free. But what is it? It comes from a terrible place. A place where there is nothing save pain. Endless pain. Incomprehensible to our minds. Great, I muttered as I noticed with a sinking heart that the screams from the girl behind me had stopped. Then I heard a wet crunch. I couldn't help it. I looked to see the professor tearing into that poor girl's throat with long black fangs dripping in green slime. I turned back to the kid, almost done with the straps. Just a few more seconds. What's your name anyway, kid? Claire. Claire, I said, my mind trying to stay focused. When I get you out of these straps, I want you to pick up this chair and throw it at that thing, okay? I'll do the same thing, okay? Then we make a run for it. Do you understand? Can you do that? I understand, said Claire. I do hope it works. I did hope it would work, too. We have to make it work, Claire, I said, yanking off the last strap. Come on. We stood up together, and I reached over to pick up a chair. I hurled it at the professor with all of my strength, and it shattered against his boned back. I heard a terrible shriek then, and watched as Claire's chair followed behind. I grabbed Claire's arm with one hand and reached for my pocket knife with the other. The only way out of that room meant passing by the professor. We started running as I pulled the knife out and flicked it up. The professor stood, still shrieking, as the green slime mixed with the red blood from the kid's throat dripped down his chin. I took a wild stab at the professor's neck and connected. I kept running with Claire, leaving the knife stuck in the professor's neck and made it to the door. I had my hand around the knob when I felt Claire pulling away from me. I looked back, helpless, as I saw the professor reach long black claws into her gut. I threw the door open and left her there. Good God, I left her there. I made it outside the lab building somehow. I don't remember how. My mind just sort of shut down as I ran like hell, I guess. I did have the presence to go around and lock all the doors from the outside. Then I got on the radio to campus security. You guys need to get the police over to the astrophysics center fucking ASAP. There was a fucking massacre in there. The front door started to rattle, and I heard the god-awful shriek again. Repeat, said a voice over the walkie. Look, I said, call up Lawrence Summers right now. That was the president of Harvard at the time, and I had seen his signature on the papers in that folder with all of the consent forms. Tell him that the wormhole experiment has gone way the fuck south. The rattling at the door stopped. I only prayed that that thing didn't figure out it could just break a window and crawl out that way. This is the janitor, right? Said a different voice on the other end of the walkie. Is this a joke? The wormhole experiment? Have you been drinking? Call Lawrence Summers. If you don't, I promise that you'll never be able to live with yourself. Do it now. There was a horrible pause. I heard the professor trying the side door now, shrieking once again. 10-4. A fleet of black SUVs pulled up two minutes later. A team of heavily armed men jumped out and ran past me, breaking through windows and jumping inside. I heard a stream of gunfire 
and screams, so many screams, and the professor's horrible shrieks. After a while, it was quiet, and a second team of men jumped through the broken windows. I didn't hear any more gunfire. I felt a hand on my shoulder and whipped around. A man was standing there. I don't remember a single thing about what he looked like, but I remember our conversation. Tell me what happened, he said. I told him the full story, the same one I've told you. We are prepared to give you a lot of money to sign an NDA. NDA. Non-disclosure agreement. It means that you can never tell anybody about what happened here tonight. How much? A million dollars. And a promotion. The man paused. You mean, you still want to work here? After tonight? Somebody's got to clean up the shit, I said. Fine, of course. And one more thing. And what's that? Asked the man. I want to know that this will never happen again. I want you to blow all that shit up and burn all the notes. Of course. And I want to watch. Of course, said the man. And so, I thought it was over. But it's not. Last night, I saw the professor again. He looked me right in the eyes, flashed his smug grin, and said, Hey there, chief. That's when I ran the hell out of there. The police don't believe me. I've sent a dozen emails to Lawrence Summers' assistants. I've called every number that I've found listed for him. I haven't heard anything back. I don't know what else to do. I'm afraid the professor is going to open the wormhole again. And I'm afraid this time he might bring his friends back with him. That story was from the No Sleep subreddit, and it was written by N.S. Lewis. It's entitled, I'm a Janitor, and I accidentally participated in the Harvard Wormhole Experiment. Hi gang, it's good to be with you all again after I had to take an episode off there two weeks ago, but now we're back. I wanted to take a moment here once again to say thank you to everyone who's sent me nice emails or left reviews for the show or sent in donations. I noticed that some podcasts read out the names of supporters like this sometimes, but I'm not sure whether I ought to be doing that. Does anybody want their name read on this show? Anyway, you know who you are, so thank you a lot. If you'd like to contribute to the show, you can see how to do that at curse.land slash donate. And if you haven't already, go ahead and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you happen to be listening. I appreciate it a lot. Oh, and one more reminder, the first ever run of Curseland t-shirts are still for sale. Those are unisex in sizing, so just one design for men and women. Um, you'll find that link in the show notes or it is now on the website if you click on merch. I think that'll be enough panhandling for now. Let's get on to the next story. When our baby daughter was born, it was a bittersweet affair. My mother had died just months beforehand. We knew she had been ill for a while. We'd made the trip up north a couple of times. My mother held her hand in my wife's belly and felt our daughter kick. Her eyes lit up. She told us she couldn't wait until she was born. But cancer doesn't answer to prayers. 
Jilly was seven months pregnant when my mother died. Just before the birth, we had a call from my uncle to say a fairly good sum was to be deposited into an account in my name. It was more than I'd expected, and with a baby on the way, it was going to make such a difference. Sarah was born a healthy baby girl. We were shocked to find out she was meant to be one of twins, but early in the pregnancy she had absorbed her sister. We were told this was common and that it shouldn't have any detrimental effects. They did say that she could have a teratoma, twin tumor, However, they would do routine scans to check. We set up the spare room for her, with state-of-the-art baby alarms so if she rolled over in the night, we'd know. We also got a night vision camera so we could keep an eye on her from our phones. A few months after she was born, we had begun to get into a routine, and Tilly did a good job looking after her when I went to work. I returned one Friday afternoon to a large crate that Tilly had brought into the living room, I checked the return address and immediately recognized it as my great-uncle's. What is this? I asked. I don't know. I've not opened it. I have to feed Sarah, she said, leaving the room. I went to the garage to get the crowbar. Returning, I looked at the wooden box and, for the life of me, I had no idea what it contained. I cranked the metal rod into the corner. The side came away with a satisfying crack, and as it fell to the floor, I saw the contents. I stood confused as I peered at the pristine rocking horse that sat within. Tilly returned, holding Sarah, and asked, I heard the bang, so what is it? It's a rocking horse, I said, confused. I pulled off the top of the crate with my hands and revealed it to my wife. Wow, that looks expensive. You say it's from your uncle? Yeah. I spent a few moments admiring it before seeing a small note attached to the saddle. What does it say? Tilly asked as I removed it. Dear Greg, I apologize for not sending this over earlier. It's been a stressful time for all involved, but your mother wanted you to have this. Treat it with the love she did. It certainly looks well made. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Later that evening, when Sarah was down to sleep, we carried it upstairs. Christ, is this made of solid wood or something? Tilly grumbled, struggling with its weight as we negotiated the stairs. Just a couple more feet, I encouraged. We stopped on the landing. Where are we going to put it? She asked. I don't know. We can put it in Sarah's room. No, she said, shaking her head. She's too small for that. We can just put it under the window. It's probably what Mum wanted. Maybe later. Let's put it in the box room. Fine, I said, as we dragged it through the hallway and shoved it into the far corner of the room. Tilly went to feed Sarah, and I admired the rocking horse from afar. Something triggered in the back of my mind, nothing more than a vague image of me holding a plastic gun, telling my dad off for not knowing Tonto wasn't a horse. Trying to raise a child in the middle of the city was an ordeal we didn't predict. As the clubs and bars let out, so did the lungs of the patrons. The early hours of the morning were peppered with the shouts and songs of drunk people, Young and old, and on many occasions, Sarah woke crying. The baby monitor would buzz in unison with our phones as the app announced our new baby girl was having problems sleeping. I'll go, I croaked one night. Tilly muttered her thanks, rolled over, and went straight back to sleep. I entered the hallway and the wooden horse caught my eye. Gently, it rocked back and forth. I walked into the room, 
my heart thumping hard in my chest. I reached out with my hand. Sarah's wailing rang out again. I turned and hurried into her room. She was lying on her back, crying. I picked her up. Are you hungry? I asked. She continued to scream. Looking out the window, I saw a small group of drunk people sway in and out of traffic, singing some song I don't think any of them knew the lyrics to. I watched until they went out of sight, their drunken chorus lost to the night. I wound up the mobile above Sarah's bed and gently rocked her as the lullaby gradually sent her to sleep. Carefully, I placed her back into her crib. I stayed for a moment to check she was asleep, and when I was sure, I left. In the hallway, I looked at the rocking horse. It sat motionless, lit ever so delicately by the ambient light. I went back to bed. I knew I'd see you at some point. I wish it was under better circumstances, but it is very nice to meet Sarah all the same, my great-uncle Jack said, then cooed at the bundle in Tilly's arms. He slouched in his seat, the years weighing him down. Come a little closer, he beckoned me with his hand. He adjusted his glasses and squinted. My, how you've grown. How old are you now? Thirty-two. He reached out. His rough fingers trailed down my cheek fondly. You know, you can visit any time you like. We've missed you. We'd like to see Sarah as she grows. He looked over to my great-aunt Jess, who creaked back and forth in her rocking chair, blissfully in her own world, knitting what I assumed was something for Sarah. Sorry, Uncle Jack, we live so far away. With all the traveling I do, I barely had time to visit Mum before she died. It's okay. It's just when you get old, you want to see more of your family. I'm very happy to see you. Why don't you sit down? You're making the room look untidy. We sat on the couch opposite him. That distinctive smell of old wafted out of the fabric. A stale but familiar odor. So you want to know all about the rocking horse? I nodded. You loved that thing when you were a kid. You'd spend hours riding it, pretending to be a cowboy. Aunt Jess looked up from her knitting and said, We've got to get those Indians, Simon. That's what you'd say. Simon, I said, and I remembered. I'd pretend I was in the Wild West. I had two six-shooters in my pockets. I smiled at that memory. Your dad told you to pretend you were the Lone Ranger with your horse, Tonto. And even though you were only four, you'd correct him and say Tonto was the Lone Ranger's friend, not the horse, and that your horse's name was Simon. Yeah, I remember that. Who was Simon? Jack's gaze drifted. Your mother's twin brother. Slightly taken aback, I queried. Mom never mentioned him? I wouldn't be surprised if she didn't remember him at all. Back when they were born, this was a farm. Her dad and I used to run the place. He did the fields and I tended the animals. His expression sobered as he began to recollect. What you probably don't know is that cows scream. It's a horrendous noise that can be heard for miles around. You never get used to it. I remember dreading those nights when the cows began to calve. For the cows to make milk, they need to produce offspring. And as soon as those little babies are born, we take them away. He saw the horrified look on Tilly's face. The male calves, we send them to slaughter the next day. As they couldn't produce milk, they'd be sold as veal. The female ones, we fed on their mother's milk, but slowly transferred them over to a substitute. And those mothers, not knowing what happened to their newborns, 
They'd cry out in the night. They'd scream until they could only wheeze. Your mother couldn't stand the sound of their pain. She'd be awake all night, crying. Her brother would hear her sob, leave his room, get in bed with her, and hug her until she fell asleep. They became inseparable after that. That's horrible, I blurted out without thinking. There is very little about farming animals that isn't. They say there's more suffering in dairy than in meat, but tell that to a milk-drinking vegetarian. Simon liked to play out in the fields, run down the tractor lines, play in hide-and-seek, go fishing by the lake, or pick apples from the orchard. Your mother would humor him, but what she really liked was to spend time with the horses. She loved to groom them. She could do that all day. But her brother always found this boring, and it wouldn't be long before he'd leave and she'd cry again. Simon, caring beyond his years, put up with it. But one early spring day, bored, he pulled too hard on a thoroughbred tail, and with one swift kick, he was taken from us. The doctor said he was gone before his head hit the hay. Jack sighed. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, we all were. It was just so unexpected. He was buried over there, he pointed out the window. One of his favorite places. That's where the orchard was. There's some apple trees left, as well as the tree he was buried next to. Your great-granddad was a fine carpenter. He made an immaculate coffin for him out of one of Simon's most favorite apple trees, the one he added the rope swing to. It made my heart ache. I got up and saw the overgrown trees that now marked the long-since-gone orchard, and I wondered if he slept well. Your mother was different after that. It was as if part of her had died. They say that about twins, don't they? That they're connected. It was unfortunately only a couple of days away from the calving season, and when those cows started screaming, so did your mother. She went and slept in her mother and father's bed, but they were no substitute for Simon. A couple of days into the season, they woke up and couldn't find her. They roused me, and we searched the house. It was still dark when we went outside and saw the light. It was only a dot in the distance, a small speck in the orchard. We ran, worried it was the start of a fire. But when we got there, we saw your mother sleeping soundly under her thick duvet next to her brother's grave. Her dying flashlight lay next to her. It was heartbreaking. When we woke her, it was as if she forgot he had died. The recognition showed in her eyes as they flicked between us and the grave. We told her that she had to come with us, that she would get ill sleeping out here. All the while, we heard the mother cows crying out for their lost offspring. The tears ran down her face like waterfalls, the pain of the loss of her brother so apparent, and we couldn't help her. When she'd cried so much, she fell backwards, exhausted. My brother picked her up and took her back to the house. That wasn't the last time she did it. Her parents put a lock on her door, but that just ended with her jumping out of the window and spraining her ankle. That night, they found her back by the grave, her ankle black and blue. She must have hopped or crawled to get out there. It was the next day when I left the milking shed and saw my brother pushing a wheelbarrow with Simon's coffin in it. What are you doing? I asked. He said, I can't be doing this any longer. What do you mean? Sarah cannot keep coming out here at night. It's dangerous. Who knows what might happen? What are you going to do? I'm going to put Simon in the furnace, he replied. His eyes were red from crying. You can't do that. What will your wife say? He stopped and let go of the wheelbarrow. 
I winced as the coffin shifted in it. Our father heard what was happening and came over. We came up with a compromise. Later that day, we wrapped young Simon's body up in his favorite blanket and put him in the furnace. Your mother was furious when she saw the grave had been desecrated. She barricaded herself in her room and didn't come out for over a day. But when she did, she saw what her grandfather had made for her, that rocking horse of yours. He explained that she no longer had to go out to the grave to be close to him, that he would always be with her. She wasn't better overnight, but when the cows screamed, she didn't jump into bed with her parents, and she didn't run out into the night to sleep next to the empty grave. When her father checked on her, she'd be fast asleep on the wooden horse, gently rocking back and forth. He swore that she wasn't moving it herself, as I'm sure you understand. I nodded. I never knew she went through that, I said. A tear trickled down my cheek that I promptly wiped away. It's okay, son. I don't think she remembered either. As she grew older, she relied on the rocking horse less and less, but did keep it in her room until she was a teenager when she asked for it to be moved out. When your granddad died, my brother and I sold off most of the farm. However, I made sure to find a little space for Simon's rocking horse. He was in the room above us until your mother died and it was bequeathed to you. Did it ever rock when it was here? I asked. Well, he said, putting his hands on his knees before heaving himself out of the chair. He shuffled over to the mantelpiece. He stood there for a moment, contemplating what he was going to say next. When your mother found out your lady wife was pregnant, she pleaded with us to change her will so that the horse would go to you. I don't know why. It stayed upstairs for a while after she died. To be honest, we had completely forgotten about it. But one day we hear this racket. I made my way up the stairs, which is no easy feat at my age, to see that thing going hell for leather. I swear it was like something possessed. And at that moment, Jess shouts up the stairs to tell me, you guys have had a healthy baby girl, and with that, the horse stopped. I know I'm old, but I don't need telling twice. So, we arranged for it to be sent to you. I guess someone wanted it for your little one. He sighed again, as if trying to work up courage. Your mother wanted you to have something else. He picked up a small wooden box from the mantelpiece and handed it over. It's been hard losing your mother after caring for her for so long. After my brother died, we were her only carers. Now, I'm not having a go, I promise. I know you couldn't be here, and so did she. She said she was so proud of you and hoped to stay around to see the baby. But things sometimes don't work out. What is this? I asked. I think you know what it is, he said, crouching down in front of his drinks cabinet. His knees clicked in unison. He poured himself a small whiskey and offered us one. Tilly and I shook our heads. He downed the drink in one. It's your mother's ashes. I think you know where they need to go. I stared at the rocking horse. It was obvious now that I knew it was there. A small brass latch on the seat. I opened it to reveal a hidden compartment. A duplicate of the box I held in my hand sat within. I placed mine next to it uniting my mother with the brother she had lost so many years ago. I closed the latch and returned to bed. Sarah cried in the early hours. Tilly slept as I crept out of bed. I heard creaks from the box room. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw the rocking horse rock. 
I tended to Sarah before returning to the box room. As quietly as I could, I dragged the wooden horse from the room and into Sarah's. I slept soundly for the rest of the night. In the morning, I told Tilly what I had done, but she didn't protest. Sarah still cries at night, but before I can get there, I hear the creaking in her room. She gurgles for a while and then falls silent. My mother and her brother are helping to look after her now. That concludes episode 35 of the Curseland podcast. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later.